Well, Alistair, thank you very much um, for that warm introduction. This is a very um, grand and exciting occasion. It's a very august audience. I'm slightly humbled and made nervous by many of the people here. I'm also very impressed that people got here. I think getting from the JR to here is about as hard as landing on a comet, um, and both have worked today. I think we're all set on the slides. Okay, the lights, yeah, that would be, that would be fine. Um, looking back, um, I, I think picking John Radcliffe was um, a great choice. I won't claim it. I think it was Raj Thacker, actually, who said, look, this is a name that brings the brand that you want for the Department of Medicine we all aspire to. The legacy is very clear. Um, I think it was clearly the right choice. But I didn't know very much about him. Um, and what you can find makes interesting reading. He was clearly the most eminent physician of his day. But it wasn't because he was a huge scientist that had a, a big legacy. He wasn't like um, Willis or others, others of the period. He was just regarded as the doctor that you most wanted to give an opinion on. Didn't write any books, but we do have, after his death, um, a list of his prescriptions. And in the 17th century, your prescriptions defined you, to some extent, as a doctor. So I've had a look at this, um, and it's clear to me that he had some really substantial challenges that made it hard for him to be a good doctor, that are rather interesting. The first one of these was he really needed more and better diagnoses. So this is the index of the list of prescriptions. A little tricky for you to read. It's the G's and the H's. There's no mention of heart. What he's describing here is really symptoms rather than um, disease entities. There's headache, there's heartburn. He's also got gangrene, gonorrhea, and gout. And then the biggest section of all, which is, I think, relevant, is hypochondriacs and hysteric persons. And I'm going to come back to that and, and Princess Anne. So he struggled for diagnoses, for sure. He really struggled for treatments as well. So these are the first six chapters, um, and they're all about medications you might use to get stuff out of people. Um, they don't even seek to fix the interior milieu. And more than that, in his day, none of these actually worked. If you read his chapter on diuretics, there are various um, recipes. They all start with ground-up millipede, sometimes alive, sometimes dead. I don't imagine they work. So he had a real problem. He didn't really have medical diagnoses, and he didn't have treatments to work. So what was his secret to success? I think the answer was he was good at that bedside medicine skill of knowing who was sick and who was not. Who was going to get better and who was not? And in his day, that really mattered. And because of the patients he looked after, it mattered a big deal. So if you look after the king and the king's wife, he looked, so this is James II, he looked after Princess Anne until he got to the point of deciding that she was hysterical, not really ill. And then she ditched him, but actually he still influenced her care from Bihar. And then he looked after William and Mary, who had some illnesses. But it seems, from what you read, that his claim to fame was he knew if somebody who was politically, strategically, or from an inheritance point of view important, was going to live or die. That was his one claim to fame. Now, things have moved on since then, but actually, I think the challenges that medicine faced today are still recognisable. They're not very different. As with Radcliffe, we want to be better at diagnosis. We recognise that our diagnoses are rather clumsy. We would like to be more precise. Precision medicine is a very popular term. We would like better tools for determining who's going to get ill, who's going to respond to treatment. We don't like the idea that we give standard therapy, the same drug to a whole group of patients, only some of whom benefit. We would like to stratify our patients so you give the right drug to the right patient. So personalised medicine, stratified medicine, very buzzy words at the moment. And for sure, we would like new drugs, and for that we need new targets, and targets that are sound. Um, and I think this is important because the day of new blockbuster drugs of a completely new class seems to be over. The drugs we're getting now, by and large, are incremental, and we probably need to divide patients into smaller groups to come up with new treatments. So the topic that I want to address in my lecture is the extent to which looking at DNA, genetics, and genomics 
can provide all of these. And I think it's timely because there is a huge excitement and expectation, and I'm going to try and convince you in some areas over expectation, that now that we can sequence genomes and now that we've had an era of genetic medicine, all of this is going to fall into place. My research work has been slightly schizophrenic. I work on rare diseases with one lab group and one lab meeting, many of whom are here. I work on complex trait diseases. And it's quite challenging to do both, but if it gives me an advantage, it's that I've got a fairly long view of genetics, and I want to try and persuade you which of these can be done from the DNA, and perhaps which of them cannot. I'm going to set out my stall at the beginning and explain the two core ideas I'm then going to try and convince you of with data, and I hope it's palatable and interpretable even at this time of night, but a little, some of it's a little hard. And here are the two ideas. If you want to look at DNA for diagnosis or for prediction or for um, deciding which patients are in which group, it will only work if you've got a genetic change that gives you a large biological effect. And I will explain that. And if the gene effect is small, it cannot work. In contrast... Genetics is very good at giving you biological causality, and I will show why. So if you want to use DNA to prove that A causes B, to validate a target or a pathway, you get that causality whether your gene effect is a big one or a small one. And so I would like to see everybody think about this when they're deciding what experiments to do, what experiments to fund. And I may be preaching to the converted, but I think it's not always seen as clearly as this. I'm probably slightly overstating it. But there is a risk at the moment that people will pin hopes on DNA that I will try and show you could not actually come good. So to understand this, I need to talk to you about effect size. Um, I think it's obvious if you have a biological background that if you have a gene change that completely inactivates a protein, you get a big effect. If you have a regulatory gene change that just tweaks up or down the amount of the protein, you'll have a small effect. We would measure the effect of a mutation by an odds ratio. If you carry that mutation, how much more likely are you to have the disease than someone who doesn't carry it? And I'm going to talk about odds ratios. And the odds ratio is reflected in how common is the DNA variant in patients who have the condition, your cases, and how common is it in the controls. And the key point is that these factors, the odds ratio, and how common the variants are in the different populations was not known until the last five years or so. So we used to write grants and make predictions and put numbers. We now know the numbers, and I'll show you them. And in some quarters, they're very sobering. And that's why I think we need to think about this. I've got a genetic slide, and I do apologise, but I think it is probably accessible. It's certainly important. And I want to illustrate the two extremes of the spectrum, genes with big effect, genes with small effect. So if the gene is a gene with a big effect, I'm talking about inherited diseases, the gene for Huntington's disease, the gene for cystic fibrosis. These are mutations that run in family, and if you have the mutation, it has a binary effect. It changes you from being an unaffected person to someone affected by a disease. So it's, it's a dichotomous trait. If you measure it in terms of odds ratio, the impact is really big. And biologically, we'd expect these to be mutations in pro protein-coding genes that alter what that gene does. At the other end of the spectrum, there are genes with small effects, and this is what we expected to find, and now know we do find, if you want to look at diabetes, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease. And here, there is no gene for having a heart attack. There are large numbers, as I'll show you, that have small effects. And if these are the populations, they shift the population left or right, if you have a threshold, let's say this is where you become diabetic, you're slightly more or less likely. But it's a subtle shift rather than an all-or-nothing effect. And we'd expect these to be the sort of gene changes that just tweak gene expression rather than change a protein. So these are the extremes. Um, I think it's important and not surprising to show you that actually they occur across a spectrum. And a, a popular way to plot this is to plot how common is your genetic variant. So these are rare mutations. These are common variants that we all have. And then is it a small effect or a large effect? And this would be effect size or a term penetrance, which is if you have the variant, how likely you are to have a disease. And up here, 
are the Mendelian diseases that we know about and have known about for a long time. Diseases that run in families due to a particular mutation. And down here, the common variants that we've found in the last decade or so. This is a slide of mine. I made it 15, 20 years ago, and I left this bit blank because I didn't know if it was going to be a curve like this or a straight line. I expected a curve, and I'll come back to why. This is a slide that you will find in lots of reviews about genetics and the impact of genetics on medicine, and it's broadly the same slide. It's how common is your variant and how big is its effect. We've got the Mendelian variants here. We've got the common variants here. And here, there is a prediction that there'll be variants that aren't very common that have a middle-sized effect. So they predicted a straight-line graph. That's one caveat. The other caveat is, and there are lots of these figures, and I don't even remember the author of this one, no one puts numbers on what the effect size is. You know, if you have this gene change, what sort of impact is it going to have on your risk? And the numbers become very important, and I'm going to come to those now. So, let's go through diagnosis, prognosis, stratification, and see what works and what doesn't work. And I'm going to start with diagnosis and just ask simply, can we use DNA to say, does my patient have this condition or not? And I think it should be obvious to you, this can only work in that situation where you have a dichotomous variant that takes you from the normal population into an affected population, it will only work in Mendelian disease. But here it's very straightforward, and it's now really standard of care in most inherited diseases. So if you want to say, here's a familial disease, we know the genetic basis, is my patient affected or unaffected, you will turn to DNA. So I will illustrate this with heart muscle disease, cardiomyopathy, that's what I've worked on, but you could do this in any walk of medicine for Mendelian disease. The point I'd make about the cardiomyopathy work is that it's been a very long journey. I first cloned most of the major genes that cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when I worked at Harvard 20 to 25 years ago. This year, for the first time, they're now coming up with a class one indication saying that if you look at the guidelines in Europe for patients with this particular heart muscle condition and you want to ask who in the family has it or not, go to DNA rather than to your clinical cardiac tests. And that's important. This is a common condition, one in 500. There'll be somebody here with it. It's a condition that causes young people to die suddenly. We have a remedy. We have devices that save lives. So we have to find these people. And this is now genetically driven. And a class one indication means you should do it. In America, it means you'll get paid, reimbursed for doing it, and you'll get sued if you don't do it. So this has gone all the way from discovery genetics to mainstream clinical care. And the reason it got there um, is based on a sort of flow diagram like this. If we have our patient who sits up here, we test his genes or her genes. If I can find a mutation that I know causes cardiomyopathy, I can test the relatives. And when I find a relative who doesn't have that DNA variant, I can discharge them. I don't need to do expensive scans. I don't need to see them. I discharge them. If we don't test or we fail to find a mutation, we use clinical tests. If I find their heart looks normal, I can't say that they will be normal in the future. So I follow them up. And if they're kids, I see them every year. If they're adults, I see them every five years. We do lots of scans. We spend lots of money. So actually, it was a, a, a BRC health economics study um, that we did here in Oxford that showed that this saved lives for an affordable amount of money and saved money. They got this commissioned in the NHS and in the guidelines. And actually, that health economics study trumped any number of New England Journal studies that came from 20 years beforehand. So this really works. It also works if you're at the Mendelian end, if you want to say, I'm sure my patient's got a rare inherited disease, which one? So in the heart muscle world, there are a lot of conditions that look a bit similar, and we tend to call them a phenocopy. Um, I've put a, a magnetic resonance image here. This comes from Stefan Neubauer's unit. And here we have a heart. This is the pumping chamber, the left ventricle. This is the left atrium, the reservoir. And this is too thick. So this is twice the thickness of normal. It looks like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And with a little bit of luck, Stefan's beautiful image will run, and you'll see the astonishing anatomical and physiological detail we can get from a, a patient's heart these days with the, the flow of the blood and the contraction of the muscle. And it's so pretty, I'm going to have to stop it moving to tell you the rest of the story. You won't listen to me. So this patient looks as if they have typical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. 
When I test their genes, it turns out that he's a middle-aged man. He, in fact, has Fabry disease, quite a rare disease. We hadn't spotted it. Maybe we're not good enough doctors, but even going back, we can't spot it. That means his sons, who previously had a 50% chance of inheriting the disease, now cannot inherit it. And it means he can be treated because we have enzyme replacement therapy for Fabry. So we've changed that whole family situation by genetic testing. So this works, and it's mainstream, and in a situation where you have um, known genes that cause disease, in patients who've got disease, this really does transform medicine. And it's not over-speaking to say this is revolutionising, this is transformative. And because we can do genetic testing much more widely, you could now look at a child born to unaffected parents who's got a severe infant disorder that you can't quite diagnose, it's probably Mendelian, we'll sequence that whole genome, and you'll probably find which Mendelian disease it is. So this really works. And I could spend the whole evening talking about this, and you would think genetics was as good as it could be. But actually, the caveats start, and I need to turn to those. And the first one is quite an Achilles heel. So it turns out, and we didn't know this, that when you start looking at the human genome, it is much, much more variable. There are many, many more mutations than we ever thought were there. So this is a problem of noise that can drown out the signal, and it's a classic Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknown. We didn't even know it was something to worry about. But we know it now for sure, and it's become really clear over the last three, two, three, four years. So we've now done, across the world, a large amount of sequencing of people's genomes, or the thing we call the exome, that's the coding bit of the genes. And every time we take a new patient and sequence their whole genome, even having done tens of thousands, we will find in that DNA hundreds of apparent mutations that look like they're nasty, look like they cause disease, very often in genes that we know cause disease, in a perfectly well patient. And we don't all walk around crippled by genetic load to disease. So it has to be that most of these variants are not causing the trouble we assume they would. And there are various genetic approaches that one can use that I won't detail that we now need to do to use to be really sure that what we find is causing what we see. But we didn't know that before. And if you go back to the medical literature, there's some nasty surprises. So if I stay within hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the condition I work on, a tenth or maybe a fifth of all of the mutations that have been reported to cause the condition including some that I published as one in the New England Journal from the 1990s, we now know aren't causing the condition, they're just rare variants in population. Worse than that, some of the genes reported to cause the condition probably don't cause the condition, because all the variants ever found are also in the normal population. So we have a problem that we didn't know we had. Clinically, what it means is when we find a variant, we check in the database to see if it's been seen before, see if it's been seen in normals, but we don't always get clarity. And the consequence of this is that if we're doing a genetic test, to get the signal to be stronger than the noise, we have to narrow the search space. We have to test the genes that are likely to be informative and be a bit cautious about testing lots of genes. But testing lots of genes is easy, and it makes you look good. I'm being a bit naughty now. But if you're running a commercial lab, the more genes you test, the more you can charge and the more patients will send you samples, physicians fit in the US. If I look at dilated cardiomyopathy, it's a different heart muscle disorder, it's more complex genetically. The number of genes available for testing has grown over the years, and the more you test, the better the test would appear to be. And here in red is your chance of finding a diagnostic result, which is getting to be sort of useful. About 30% of patients, you will find a DNA result is really solid and that you can use. But if you do that, 46 gene test, 60% of the time, you find a variant you've never seen before that looks suspicious, but you can't make your mind up. And that's a really difficult place for a physician to be. So this is actually not nearly as easy to use as you would think. Think about the situation if you don't test 46 genes, but you test 20,000, which is our entire genetic complement. You will get drowned by noise, and it can be very hard to pull the signal out. And people uh, a little um, underestimate the challenge of that thing. Think also that if you test a patient who never was likely to have a pathogenic mutation in that gene, because they don't obviously have the condition, the chance of what you find is much more likely to be the red herring than the causal mutation. And that's what comes up 
if you look for what we call incidental findings. If you go and have a chest x-ray to look at your lungs and there's something wrong with the bones, that's an incidental finding. Same thing happens with type and DNA. And this has become really live, largely because of one now notorious paper, which I think is a fantastic example of well-meaning but totally misguided committee think. So this is a very worthy committee, um, and it was endorsed by, by the board of this um, August institution that said, look, there are mutations that are sufficiently predictive of a disease that's sufficiently nasty for which there's a treatment that surely the physician should be obligated to give that result to the patient, whether they want to hear it or not, because it's relevant to their family. And if you have that notion, it turns out they came up with 57 genes. We now call them the Heinz varieties, and you can see why. Half of them are familial cancers, and the other half are the sudden cardiac death conditions that I look after. And the idea would be, we tested your tumour to see which drug you should have, but we noticed that you've got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And because that could kill you and your family, but because of the treatment, you have to know this information, and you have to tell them. And that has real challenges to do with consent and autonomy, but actually it has challenges to do with, do we really know what these mutations mean outside of the context of when you're sitting in my clinic with a patient with disease? So we tested that. There are some very nice genetic experiments that you can do in Oxford, because Oxford is right plugged into the middle of it. Um, Oxford was one of the first places to do genome sequencing at scale. This is a partnership with Illumina. And I've taken data from a paper from Jenny Taylor and Gil McRae and Andrew Wilkie, many others. And what I've done is we've gone to the 57 genes and we've tested them in 200 patients who did not have these diseases. And you don't worry about the details, but we find here four examples of absolutely robust-looking sudden cardiac death mutations, which if I saw in my clinic, I would say caused a disease that needed cascading in the family that needed treatment. And this is at least 10 times too many. These are rare diseases. I shouldn't find four in, in 200. And what it means is that in the setting of the normal population, these variants are not nearly as predictive as we thought they were. So you'll know that the NHS is now funding 100,000 whole genomes. At this hit rate, there'll be 2,000 families referred to my clinic when that experiment is done with apparent inherited cardiac disorders who probably don't have them. To resolve it, we have another nice opportunity, and that's our interface with UK Biobank. So Peter Donnelly, Gil McVeigh have done a very elaborate experiment, lots of detail here, but the bit that matters to me is I sat down with Gil and we put on a genotyping array that will be used for all the 500,000 subjects, any variant ever previously accused of causing inherited heart disease. So I will now get to learn how common they are in the population, and by the time the biobank's been phenotyped, how often they cause disease. And I think we'll find they're not as predictive as we thought they would be outside of the family setting. If I switch away from diagnosis to can I use DNA to predict outcome and treatment response. It won't surprise you that I'm only going to expect this to work with a big genetic effect. Big genetic effects come in two or maybe three situations. The inherited diseases we've talked about. Cancer has big genetic effects. The gene changes that are mutated to cause a normal cell to become a cancer are much simpler than the process that takes you to disease. And most of the examples we have where knowing a DNA variant tells you what drug to have come from cancer. So the BRAF inhibitors would be a classic example. It's quite large genetic effects in adverse drug reactions. So the, the factors that make you um, handle a drug abnormally or have an abnormal immune response to it are quite few, and so the genes have big effects. So in these settings, you've got large effects, but I'm not going to give you a forecast better than good to moderate that anything useful will come out of it. And this would surprise most people who would think this would just completely cut through it. And the reason I think you're not going to get better than moderate prediction is this is what we've learned for most of the Mendelian diseases, I think obviously about inherited heart diseases. We spent a long time asking how does the genotype, your mutation load, influence your phenotype, how the disease manifests. And we do it in the cardiomyopathies and in long QT. I kicked this off. I think the first paper on this topic was one of mine in 1992, and I found different mutations in different myofilament proteins that had different natural history, and it looked like it could be a fantastic tool. 
but there are two real limitations. One is within a family where everyone has the same mutation, there's a very wide range in response. It's not predictive enough. I can look at Mr. and Mrs. Smith and say, okay, I know what it means for your future, even in Mendelian disease. But also, we even now are still finding mutations we've never seen before because the number is absolutely huge. There are some genes that have got into the textbooks, and I've contributed a couple, where knowing the gene might tell you prognosis or treatment response. And long QT, a, a cardiac channel disorder, would be one. But when people come along and do randomized trials later, it's never as pretty as you think. And actually, the beta blocker treatment works pretty well for all the different varieties. And this is sobering, because this is as good as it's going to get. Trying to predict disease outside of Mendelian disease can only be harder than this. It's sobering. I don't think it should be surprising. I don't know why it surprises people. It's a very long journey from here's a mutation in your gene to here's your disease. We have thousands of other genes that will influence the translation of that biological effect. We have epigenetic changes which can be heritable that have been acquired perhaps from your parents' generational environmental exposures. And we have your own environmental exposures. And it's a very long way from here to here. And it shouldn't surprise us that even in Mendelian disease, it's not all that predictive knowing what the DNA variation is. So if I'm doing a clinical talk, I kind of overstate it for a clinical audience. I apologise, but that's what works. This is the strap line. Counsel the genotype, treat the phenotype. By that I mean if your DNA is so great in the family, you use that to decide who you need to medically look after. But thereafter, we use medical tools, not DNA tools, to decide how likely somebody is to get an illness. And that's very sobering at a time when people want to use DNA tools to predict what kind of diabetes you have or what kind of high blood pressure you have. I pulled out one experimental example to make the point. Before we knew genes causing cardiomyopathy, go back to the 1980s, scientists and drug companies used rodent models of the cardiomyopathies and different heart failures. And a much used one was Syrian hamster, two lines of hamster, came out of Japanese laboratories. This is your normal hamster heart. One has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, lots of muscle, lots of volts. One has DCM, thin muscle, no volts. Heartbreaking discovery. Both these um, animals have the exact same mutation. They're homozygous null for delta sarcoglycan. So you can have a particular mutation, and then the genetic background, because they have the same environment, can take you from this to that, or from this to that. Humans are outbred. So we're more variable, and our environment is more variable. So the idea that you could look at a mutation and say, ah, oh, okay, I know what you're going to get, is actually a bit of a stretch. You want to know, um, as we all would, well, can we expect to see mutation-specific treatment? You know, we know the precise DNA cause. Are we going to see real personalised medicine? Here's a patient who's got this variant, then needs this drug. I think it will only work if we're going to try and fix the DNA change itself. If I talked a year ago, I'd say that'll never happen. With genome editing now, someone's going to get a Nobel Prize for that. I think it really might happen. They won't start in heart disease. And it can happen if you're fixing it biochemically, very proximal in the pathway, very near the mutation. And the, the poster child for this, outside of the cardiac field, I'm dead envious of it, comes from Vertex's drug, if a caftor in cystic fibrosis. So this is a small molecule drug came through screening, which if you have this specific mutation causing cystic fibrosis, even if you're heterozygous for it, helps channels with this missense mutation gate, the, the chloride channels gate normally. And this is um, from Steve Chapman in Oxford, and it's a single patient with CF who has grumbly lung function that's almost normalised at the point of starting this drug. This is as good an example you'll ever see of personalised medicine. It's more or less miraculous, and it's fantastic. But there are two fairly obvious caveats. It only works with this mutation, and there are only 320 people in the UK with it. And it costs £190,000 per year. So this is afforded at the moment. NICE will pay for this. But when we get better at this, and we have more examples of rare disease for which we have unique targeted um, agents, I'm not sure they're going to keep, keep paying. It's, it's just going to bankrupt any, any country. So I have a, a, a different approach to, to trying to fix these rare diseases, which I would like to illustrate very briefly with our work on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is seeking not to get right at the beginning of the mutation, 
but to find a point in some final common pathway that might be tractable for all the patients with mutations. So I won't show you the data, but we spent a long time looking at all the diverse mutations in these contractile proteins, and it took a long time for the penny to drop that the one thing they have in common is they make this molecular motor very wasteful of energy, of ATP. And so we predicted that mutations here that cause the cardiomyopathy would cause you to burn up too much ATP. And then we observed that if you can't measure ATP levels because you have a mutation in this kinase, which is like the, the thermostat that measures ATP levels, or if you can't make enough ATP, you get the same sort of heart disease. So we began to think this could be the point you would want to try and treat to remedy this condition. There are reasons you can be somewhat optimistic. Despite having the mutation, not everybody gets the disease. There's a long journey from mutation to disease. This is a plot of how likely you are to have clinical disease for three different mutation groups with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you'll see here, the kids and the teenagers, they have the mutation. Their heart is just as abnormal biochemically. They tolerate it perfectly fine. You'll see here a late onset form. And here's a group, about 15, 20% of, of whom have the mutation, never show any heart disease. So there is some compensated state that can keep you safe. And our job is to try and work out what that is and see if we can keep people in that state. We're very lucky in Oxford. I've shown you fantastic cardiac MR imaging. Stefan's unit can also do fantastic MR spectroscopy. And this is how you measure energy stores in the heart. And I won't labour you with the science, except to say that we've done this in our patients and we can measure this indicator of energy stores in the heart. And it has a spread like all biological things. And this parameter is low in patients with a cardiomyopathy. And it's low in different mutation groups, which is nice for us. It fits the final common pathway. And it's low in people who don't yet manifest the disease. That would fit with the big and early part of the target. We think it's a tractable target um, because the heart is a very um, adaptable energetic organ. The heart can burn fat down one pathway into mitochondria. It can burn sugar down another into glycolysis. And it turns out, for reasons that have been known for a long time, that when oxygen is limiting, and it is in these hearts, and we've tested it and proven it, but I won't show you, that actually you get more ATP per mole of oxygen if you put more of your substrate down this pathway. And on this slide are a bunch of really old-fashioned antianginals. I was going to rudely say that might be familiar to some of the older members of the audience, but I possibly, well, I've said it now, um, <laughs> that, that aren't in use anymore, but suddenly come back to life as possible drugs for achieving this. And this is something that Human Ashwafen and I have worked on a long time, and we persuaded colleagues in Birmingham and London to do a mechanistic randomised trial in symptom-limited patients with cardiomyopathy. We used this drug per hexylene, and if we measure the peak cardiac performance it gets significantly better. And if we measure the improvement in symptoms, it gets quite significantly better. And in this rare disease, this is as good a result as we've ever seen. People haven't trialled drugs in this condition very often. This is as good as you can get. This is a drug that's gone off patent. Human had to work very hard to get FDA approval for orphan status. And now we hope we will see a clinical endpoint trial. So the lessons that I think we can learn from that side of the, the, the cardiomyopathy story is the particular point that I think it has a lot to do with energy balance. The general point that genetics is really good for causality, and if you can use it to validate a target, you're more likely to be successful. I like to use genetics to validate general groups of patients rather than very small groups. And of course, if you're an academic, it's much easier to repurpose an existing agent that's out there than to use a completely new one. Let me switch slightly more briefly, to the other side of it, to the common disease, small genetic variant end. It would be really nice um, to have DNA variants that could help us predict who was at risk of atherosclerosis, throwing up of the arteries, to predict even more who might crack a plaque, end up with a thrombosis, and have a heart attack or a stroke. We have predictors, but we could do better. It would be great. But my punchline, and again, I'll show you why, is in common disease, and I'm thinking diabetes, asthma, um, high blood pressure, coronary disease, the genes that do this are very numerous, their effects are very small, and the likelihood that you can usefully predict, with two caveats, any particular disease in any particular person 
is low. And there are really good mathematical reasons for this. We know that the total genetic signal is measured by the thing we call heritability, and we can't do more than how heritable the trait is. What we never used to know was, was it a few genes, that would be tractable, or lots, that would be hard, Did they have big effects or small effects. And we now know, and the answer is at one level quite depressing. So first of all, number of genes, how many genes are there? So don't get your science from the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, um, this doesn't reflect well on me at all, this story. I tried to explain to the science editor of the Mail, who's actually a very smart woman, look, there isn't one gene for heart disease. We've done studies, and we know there are dozens, in fact, hundreds. It's really complex, and the papers that you want me to comment on, one from Oxford, others elsewhere, describe 18 of those dozens of genes. That's a very unpalatable message from the male. So she says, look, there isn't one gene for heart disease. There are 18, and they've been discovered today. So I took a lot of stick from my colleagues who were apparently misleading the mother. She knew exactly what she was doing. Saying we found 18 out of 200 doesn't really cut it, but it is the truth. So we now know lots of genes make you slightly more or slightly less likely to have a heart attack. What about the size of these genetic effects? So I showed you this slide earlier, and I said I anticipated that it would be this shape, and I was struck that we never put numbers on our y-axis. So here are data that give you both of those. You're quite lucky to see them. They're unpublished. They come from Martin Fowle, um, who is leading a very large-scale genetic analysis and coronary disease that he and I and Rory Collins and others have worked on for many years, including people in, in the audience here. Huge study. We have large-scale genetic data on 185,000 patients. So this is big, big science, big-scale science. We've tested 6 million common variants that are doing a common frequency and a couple of million in this rare end of the frequency. And these are the 46 results that we think have unimpeachable credentials that clearly are low side, genetic low side, that put you risk of coronary disease. And I plotted here their effect size by odds ratio. And there is the sort of curve we looked for. And we're pleased to see that the four that have a relatively big effect are all ones that came out of Oxford analyses, despite the fact this is a worldwide study. But we don't find very much in this rare disease space. That's important for people in the field. We thought we'd find things right up here. They're not there. And look at these numbers. These are tiny. These genes here increase your risk of coronary disease by 5 or 10%. Smoking increases your risk by 3, 4, 500%. So these are really, really small effects. And the moment we know that, that there's a couple of hundred of them and the effects are small, all bets are off for prediction. And we knew that because that has been mathematically modelled by very sensible people before we actually had the results of the experiment. And this slide is a bit fiddly but worth understanding. It's a model. It's based on a disease that's quite common, 10% of the population, let's say like diabetes, and here is that threshold of 10% risk. Model with 40 genes, that's optimistic, we think it's hundreds, we know it's hundreds. They're common, that's correct, and the odds ratios here, this is optimistic, because in fact they're 1.05 to about 1.4. So this is more positive than the reality. And plotted here in black is the risk that you get on this vertical scale if you've got 5, 10, or 15, or 20 of these dodgy, male, we call them rogue genes. And it looks quite promising. If you've got just two or three of these, you're clearly not going to get diabetes. If you've got 20 or 25 of them, you're, you know, 40, 50% likely to get diabetes. But plotted behind in pale is the number of people that have these different scores. And virtually nobody has a score that would be strongly predictive of bad risk or strongly predictive of protective risk. Almost everybody sits in the middle average risk. So if I had a patient in front of me and I did this experiment to say, are you more likely to have a heart attack or have diabetes? Probably give me no information at all. The only time this can work is if you do it at population level, type the whole population's DNA, then you get the odd person, couple in a hundred here, couple in a hundred here, where you get something useful. And if you tested all the diseases that we care about, it might be that many of us would be at some extreme risk for something. You need monitoring for prostate cancer risk, you need monitoring for heart disease risk. It could work, but that's got to be DNA on file for the whole population, and we're way short of that. And in the meanwhile, it's not going to work. Could you use it to predict treatment response? That will only work if treatment response is genetically simpler than disease risk. And there is evidence I won't show you that basically it isn't. 
So when you read, we've got a gene test that tells you how likely you are to respond to drug A or drug B, unless it's cancer, be very, very cautious, because these are small effects, and they're numerous, and they're just not very predictive. And caution is not um, characteristic of the field at the moment. So this is a locally notorious example. Uh, hold on, I want... Oh, yes, no, okay. What I'm saying is there is a risk that if you think you have a predictive test and it isn't, you'll give all sorts of misinformation. And the example we most like to hate, because um, it was really egregious, comes from Solera. So this is Craig Ventner's company, the private genome people. Um, they published data from two or three small studies saying that this variant in KIF6 can predict whether you're likely or not to get a heart attack and whether you're going to get normal response to statins or not. Gemma Hopewell, who's sitting there with Robert Clark, who works with Rory Collins, tested this properly on a maybe 20 times bigger study. Completely null. Absolutely doesn't work. It took the FDA quite a long time to close this program down. Uh, I came back from the AHA having shown some of the data, and I had lawyers' letters on my desk before I got back to Oxford. But eventually they did shut it down, because it just doesn't work, but not before 150,000 tests have been done. 50,000 will have had the results saying, oh, statins probably don't work with you. And if half of those stopped taking the statin, then people will have died. So using, over-interpreting what genetics can do is a very risky business. Now, you might be thinking, gosh, this guy doesn't believe in stratified medicine. The answer is, I absolutely do. We need to be much better than we are in dividing our patients into useful groups. I just don't think it can be done by looking at DNA variants, because we now know their effects are too small. We need to be much near the disease. We need to look at what you might call intermediate phenotypes, which are traits that contribute. So an example would be cholesterol. Don't tinker around with genes that slightly perturb your cholesterol up or down. Just measure cholesterol. Then you get all the genetic effects, all the epigenetic ones, all the environmental ones, and you're on your way. So I thoroughly believe in stratification, but I don't think it can be done by looking at DNA variants, despite the fact that people think we can. In these common disease variants, one thing that is worth saying is quite a lot of them encode novel cytokines. And because you have causality, that's really attractive. If you can find a cytokine that predicts your risk of coronary disease, you can measure that and, again, integrate all of those signals. And I'm going to pick an example just to show you that I'm not a Luddite. I do believe in stratification. Again comes from Oxford. Again comes from respiratory, actually. And I think Peter Ackler sitting here will be, will be happy with this. This comes from Ian Pavord, new recruit to respiratory medicine at Oxford. So about 10 years ago, GSK made a humanised antibody to IL-5, the cytokine that takes eosinophils and causes them to cause mischief in the lung in asthma. High hopes that it would remedy the condition, but it had no effect in an early mechanistic study on this parameter we showed earlier, the FEV1, how much you can blow out in one second. And it languished for 10 years and pretty much got shelved. Ian's come along and said, look, actually, you can divide asthma patients into two groups. Half of them have hyper-eosinophilia. Originally, he looked at sputum, but latterly just in blood, really easy blood tests. So if you divide your asthmatics into those two groups, and if you ask, as an endpoint, clinical events, deterioration after need steroids, lo and behold, the same drug works really well, and this is now probably going to be rescued. So stratifying your patients into groups is lovely. I just don't think you can do it by a small number of DNA variants. But I said at the beginning that if you want to get at biology, it doesn't matter if the effect sizes are small. And this is why I do this work. You might think, why does he do the complex trait genetic work if it's not predictive? I don't do it for that reason. I do it to define biology and targets and mechanisms. And the reason is, and I'll show you this, that for those purposes, it doesn't matter if these effects are small. And because they're small and numerous, we've actually got lots of targets that we can validate. And you can find subsets that are rather large rather than narrow. How do we know this? So if I look at those variants that on the slide I showed you from Martin Fowle, a bunch of them encode proteins that are already classic drug targets for coronary artery disease. So these are the targets of some of our favourite lipid-lowering drugs. So if we hadn't discovered statins, you would now have a pointer that that locus told that that protein was involved in coronary disease. And this is true for the ones we know about. The ones we don't know about presumably also capture valid targets also. And the key here is it doesn't matter 
the genetic effect size here was small. So the DNA variant in these loci that contributes to risk is again in an odds ratio of 1.05, it's tiny. But it tells you that the target has a causal role, you come along with the drug with a big effect, statin, um, and you get a huge benefit, and you get it for all. So knowing that you've got causality gives you the validation that you need. And if we look at all of our coronary artery disease um, genes, some of them map onto things we already knew about, lipid traits, inflammation, and blood pressure, but the large majority don't. And although these will be hard to work out, and they will take time, but we have strategies, there are bound to be novel targets and novel pathways in here. And this is why I do this work, so that you can come back later on and say, here's a whole new class of agent that we didn't have before, genetically validated, that we think will impact on coronary disease. Until we get to there, all we can do at the moment is use this causality aspect of genetics to ask some interesting questions here. And I'll show you just two slides on one of those, again, work that, that comes from here. When we look at our large-scale genetic testing in coronary disease patients just within the Oxford collection, the result that stood out by far most of the most strong one had to do with a gene called LPA that encodes a lipoprotein, LP little a. And we found two genetic variants. These have got quite respectable odds ratios for coronary disease. These are much bigger than we've seen before. And they have an enormous impact on the variance of the trait. They, oh, this one almost makes it a Mendelian trait, and I won't go into the reasons why. And this is a really nice tool, because LPA is quite a conundrum, or has been quite a conundrum. So LPA is a type of cholesterol in the blood. It comes about from an LDL molecule, a classic bad cholesterol, attached to an apolipoprotein A, the protein product of this gene. And if you measure it, you can show that it's a good predictor of coronary disease risk, independent of other risk factors hard to measure, it's not routinely measured, but you don't know that it's causal. There are other risk factors that are clearly not causal. CRP would be one. We know that if you measure CRP, you can predict your risk of heart disease, but it doesn't cause it, so you never want to treat it. But here we can say, okay, we have a genetic effect, we can ask whether this is causal, because that's going to matter. And the result is very clear. So if we plot here, people who've got neither of our variants, people who've got one, people who've got two, you see a nice linear association with level and a nice linear association on a doubling scale with risk. And that's a very simple story. It means that this genetic variant increases the level and increases risk. And that's not what you see with CRP. With CRP, the curve would go this way. So this is the best evidence we have of causality. And Robert, who, who is here, published this in the New England Journal a couple of years ago. So just on the LPA point, these variants do confer risk through levels. That means it's causal. That makes it a drug target. So if you lower LPA, you would expect to lower risk of coronary disease. And this is really important to pharmaceutical companies. There are agents that do this. There are agents in the pipeline that might do it better. Um, CGSU are busy measuring LPA in a lot of studies. And it comes about because genetics gives us causality. And I think it's just a nice way that even within the known genes, we can help define targets. In the long term, we want novel targets. So my last slide is some sort of effort to try and tie this together and to contrast the rare disease end with the common disease end. So for rare variants, these are good at identifying people at risk. We do genetic diagnosis, it works, it's routine, it's in care. Sometimes we see a patient and our DNA variant tells us how to treat them because it's predictive. But that's not really the norm. It's harder than you want it to be. Whole genome sequencing, very affordable. It's coming down towards the £1,000 mark. That's cheaper than doing a whole bunch of scans. We will use it to diagnose Mendelian diseases. But from my point of view, the exciting thing is that these are really good for understanding biology. And it doesn't matter if the rare disease you study is vanishingly rare. There are drugs that are close to market that have been discovered on gene changes in families, half a dozen people. There's a new pain relief, for example, that looks like it's going to work. I think there are only about six people in the first family. Because if the biology is intact, you can use it, you know, you, you'll be correct. But for common disease, which is for most of our diseases, these are just not good at predicting risk. And the only way I can ever see them work is when we all have DNA on file in some NHS computer at some point in the future, because then there will be the odd, really extreme person who's really extreme for some trait that you might need to know about. They're not very good for stratified medicine. We need other tools, but they're really good for biology. And the fact that there's lots of them just makes me happy. It means it will keep me busy for the rest of my career, and it doesn't matter 
if the effect sizes are small. So look, I'm very lucky to be able to continue to be research active at a time when I have responsibility for a big department. I can only do that because I have a team of very committed and very talented colleagues. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's predominantly the Oxford list. And I won't read everybody out here. Um, but within sort of the wider lab group that I have responsibility for, I've got three colleagues in particular, senior independent scientists, um, and I wouldn't be still research active if it wasn't for them. So I would like to acknowledge um, Charles Redwood, who's done a lot of the molecular biology of the heart muscle work over the years, Huynash Rafen, who's done a lot of the work on the metabolism and the energetics, and Martin Farrell on the statistical genetics of coronary disease. Lots of funders, lots of funding, but head and shoulders above the rest. The BHF have funded me continuously, um, touch wood, for 25 years, and I'm extremely grateful for that. So I would be very happy to take questions at this point. I don't want to stand very long between you and your drinks, um, but I think we have got time for some questions. Thank you very much, Hugh. I'm sure I speak for everyone in the audience. Uh, thank you for an absolutely outstandingly thoughtful uh, lecture. Uh, in a sense, you didn't answer your question. It's <laughs> hope and hype. Depends yeah. which way you look at it and which end of the spectrum uh, you're coming from. But I'm sure that there are a number of questions from the audience. Uh, there are microphones, but they're trying to record this. Whether we should be able to get microphones into the middle of the room I don't know, but we'll, let's we'll, have we'll a go. Manage. You might yeah. have to shout very loudly. So, some questions, please. So Ranch, thank you. That is uh, the mic coming down, down first, yeah. yeah. Hugh, great talk. Thank you very much, actually, and really comprehensive and a tour de force. So, it was brilliant. The question I have, actually, is, I was really intrigued at your wonderful analysis of the risk of the various variants that you had on that slide yeah. with their frequency in the population. It just made me think that actually, there are two things about One is, evolutionarily, I guess we've yeah. fed ourselves into that bottleneck, if you want to look at it that way, but quite right because you wouldn't survive. But I just wonder what that analysis may look like, and you might have the data there, if you look at different populations. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder if we might pick up those different variations. Yeah, no, you're, you're right on both fronts. If I had looked at, you, you remember I showed a curve of effect size. If you do that looking at traits, not diseases, um, skin color, eye color, hair color, you get whopping genetic effect sizes because they've been selected by evolution. Um, coronary disease hasn't. It's not been selected against because it's a recent disease. It might have been slightly selected for. It could be some of the genes that protect you from infectious disease make it risk of but By and large, it, it hasn't been selected and the effect sizes are smaller. You see some signal of um, increased frequency of particular variants in isolated populations. There are examples. There's, there's, there's a nice one for um, coming, out of, that came out of Greenland just recently. The, there are some examples of variants that were fixed there that have larger effects. So you, you wouldn't want to say that won't happen. I just think it's not the norm. And, and, and so, you know, coming, coming back to the hype hope question, you know, I think we can have as much hype as we like for the rare disease end, and actually, you know, that's what most efforts is, and for the biology. But I would be very cautious about all these, particularly companies, but actually also health services that believe that they will predict common disease in, in average typical populations. Thank you. Peter. Peter Rack. Uh, we pass the mic to I, well, I promised a controversial question to you. So um, you have argued, or others have argued, uh, that a very small effect uh, that is causal uh, predicts that a big effect achieved by a drug would have a similar action. Uh, that implies a monotonic relationship, yes. which you showed uh, beautifully, uh, a dose relationship for LPA. Given the complexity of gene interactions to a physiological or disease impact, how likely do you think that, that is to be true? I suppose I'm influenced by the finding that in our disease and others, diabetes, autoimmunity, that where we find a genome-wide association locus um, that has got a an existing drug target in it, you know, this is what we see. Small effect, genetically, big effect, 
um, with the drugs that works. But of course, those drugs have been filtered by the fact that they work. So will that be the norm? It's not hard to construct a scenario where it would not be the norm, where a large effect would be lethal or fatal or deleterious somewhere else. Um, have I got any way of putting a handle on how lightly which, which case is likely to be the case? I mean, I think you might... There, there are some uh, other examples that are coming through that, that, that suggest that there is a fairly broad, as you say, monotonic... Um, range of effect over which you can get just unidirectional benefit. It won't always be the case. And, and, and when we look at these GYS loci, um, we know there are hundreds of them. You'd only need a handful of them to come up with something that was a drug target that gave you a uniformly beneficial effect, and the money spent would have been worthwhile. So yeah, I'm sure some will fall by the wayside for exactly the reason that you say, that actually you hit them hard and other, other things go wrong. One question that uh, really struck me was when you showed fairly close to the beginning of the lecture how you could have the very obvious mutation without the phenotype. Yes. And we had three things feeding into that epigenetic yes. environment yes. and so on. Do we understand anything about the mechanism that is really compensating for you know, a obvious change in, in, in a few nice examples, but they're still the minority. So uh, a classic one, people will say sickle cell disease. So you've known about the mutations that cause sickle cell disease for a very long time. Yeah. Medicine's not fixed it, suggests that knowing about genes doesn't work. One of the things that's made it hard is that you can be um, homozygous for the sickle variant, and still anywhere on a spectrum from infant childhood disease through to really looking quite well in later life. So it's clearly one of the examples, and this is the norm, where there are major impacts. There, is, there are one or two examples that have been worked out that are environmental that influence that risk. There's a very nice genetic one. So it turns out that the amount of um, fetal hemoglobin you make is very variable. Um, Mark Lathrop and Sweeney Thine did a genome-wide association study measuring um, hemoglobin F as a quantitative trait. They found a genetic variant that determines whether you have a lot or a little, and that's now the target of a pharmaceutical company program to say if we can upregulate hemoglobin F, we can ameliorate sickle. So you know that's just one example where one of the arrows on that pathway has been filled in, but yeah. filled in in a way that might be therapeutically very advantageous. For most diseases, we haven't really gone far enough, we haven't got the traction to know what the genetic, epigenetic factors yeah. are. Sometimes we know the environmental ones. Um, they're very good for coronary disease. We know lots about the environmental ones. They're not so good for breast cancer. You know, it, it, it's a variable thing. But knowing what the modifier gene's in is something that we've really not made much headway on yeah. yet. We'll come, and they could be very good therapeutic targets, just as they are for the, for, for the, for the sickle. Okay, thank you. Yes, Derek. If you were forced to guess, how long do you think it takes to effectively adapt to an evolutionary, to an environmental change? In other words, Stone Age diets, have, should we have adapted them already or not? Surely. There are people who would be so much better at answering that question than me, and they're probably in the room. Um, you can see footprints of, of evolutionary change certainly in the human population over periods of thousands of years, so relatively recent. Um, one of the ones that, that we, we look at is, is that genetic variant um, that makes you um, lactose intolerant, and that's got a very clear north-south gradient and can map with populations that have moved and changed their propensity to use dairy farming over the last maybe two to 10,000 years. So that's, that's pretty recent. I don't know enough. There will be people who know more as to whether there are evolutionary changes that can, that can be measured over a shorter time period than that. I'm pretty sure there will be virtually no evolutionary selection for things like coronary disease. They're definitely too, too recent to, to have done that. But the Lankers one is very interesting. So if you take a, Peter Donnelly's shown this, if you take a bunch of um, DNA samples from individuals 
who had the one requirement that they grow up living near where their grandparents were born, i.e. they're relatively settled, you can, by, by testing just a small number of variants, you can put them on the UK map to within about 100 miles. So there is a gradient right the way through the island, and it, and it goes all the way up to, to, to the north of the UK, on things that have been selected, including the access to, to milk and dairy. So, you know, there is, there is a clear signal. How much it interferes with the diseases we work on now, I did notice of. If there are no more questions, can we once again thank you for a really outstanding first inaugural round of applause.